0: Book of Esther, please. uh, Pew Bibles, page 483. And you will be using your Pew Bibles, so get a hold of them, okay? Esther, chapter 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cottoned curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother-of-pearl, And precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. Which is another way of saying do what you want. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged king ahasuerus the grass withers and the flowers fade away but the word of our god stands forever to which you respond by saying together hallelujah and thanks be to god this is my father's world and it is oh let us never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong you are the ruler yet lord if you've ever showed that to us Show it to us now by your own word read read and preached. Grant the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray, that your word would come to our very hearts and transform us to the glory of your amazing, truthful name. We ask these things in Christ, the name of Christ, the truth, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together. Amen. 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 Please be seated. And you will want to turn to page 483. Mary, so thankful for your company. Remember, pray for Mary because it's your left hand, right? And Mary's got some tendon muscle issues there. Uh, we don't want to lose you, Mary, and uh, we don't want you to have to get surgery. So we pray, pray, pray. Page 483. I want you to indulge your aging, I did not say old your aging preacher this morning. this will give you a a little window on a, on a preacher in the Word of God. I have been absolutely fascinated by and riveted on particularly the first eight verses of the book of esther and i' have not we read through the book, but I can't, I can't get away from those, and that's. there's a reason for that. This is a story, and it's a true story, but it, it, in all good stories, there's a lot of stuff in the very beginning, and boy, that is really, really the case in this section. Just to give you some example, the vivid language that's here, porphyry, you know what porphyry is? We'll find out a little bit later. Mother of Pearl. Um, linen that's mentioned. All of these very vivid specifics that are mentioned. It's quite makes the text quite fascinating. The, the descriptions of the palace. The only other places where you have descriptions like this and that are this elaborate are in the descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. And there's a reason why the Holy Spirit, who's the author of all of these books using different authors, sees that this counterfeit of the tabernacle and the temple be described here. That's fascinating. How this material is illustrated by both history and archaeology absolutely thrilling and fascinating. I don't know of any section prior to this in the Old Testament where you have such an outpouring of evidence demonstrating these books. You don't need to prove them because the Holy Spirit does that, but he uses those things. And I'll just give you one example a little bit later of just one of the historical references that kind of fleshes this out. And then, if that's not enough, when you Contrast this with the very end of the book. It is absolutely astounding you 're just your mouth will hang open. Well, i 'm hoping that that will somewhat impact you today because this aging preacher who 's been fascinated with this material we 're going to go and look at it in more detail. We just wet the appetite last week with the days of Ahasuerus. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over one hundred and twenty seven provinces. there was something called a, a satrap that would be a little bit like a state, I guess, and uh, there were there were fewer of those, but in the same way, states are made up of counties so the these satraps uh, were made up of provinces there were one hundred and twenty seven of them and many many believe and I think there 's truth in this. the reason why that is chosen is a large number like this indicates power uh, which is what's going to be developed in in the remainder of the book but I don't want to get too far afield with it. So so all of those things and as I was going through this I thought of of the man that h- it really is probably the most famous broadcaster in American history. Remember I'm not I'm a, not a TV guy but I'm a radio guy. But Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey who graced the airwaves in the middle part of the, of the 20th century, for over 30 years, was famous and widely listened to for uh, a five-minute series that he called The Rest of the Story. And he would spin the story out, and then, and then uh, he, there'd be a little break, and he'd come back and he would say, and now for the rest. Of the story, and he had these these interesting things. One of them was about President Franklin Roosevelt, who was a very wealthy man, uh, president in the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, and uh, apparently he was he was wont to give gifts, to to financial gifts to young people uh, in whom he saw a lot of promise, and he received a communication from a young boy uh, who apparently really really appealed to. President Roosevelt's heartstrings, and he sent a financial gift to the person, only to find out years later he had helped fund the development of the Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. So, those are the kinds of things that you would get in the rest of the story. So, what we're going to do is this here's the outline. Thank you, Paul Harvey. Oh, long since gone home to be with the Lord. Uh, But here's the outline for today. Number one, the story. The story is in in verses 1 through 9 in in Esther. And uh, the story, and then as you would imagine, the rest of the story. But there's two parts to the rest of the story, okay? So we have the rest of the story, if you want, part 1 and part 2. There we go. And there's a word that I want embedded in you, okay? I wish Joe Matone were here, but Mike, you'll appreciate this. Subflooring. That's the word I want you to have It Subflooring is what usually is plywood underneath your tile or your linoleum or, or your pergo or whatever it would be uh, that you have as your floor. And, of course, you're looking at your floor. You don't think about subflooring. But I want you to think about subflooring in a real sense If you're not thinking about subflooring and only flooring, you are on a very dangerous path. All right, so there you go. Number one, the story. And again, this is page 483 in your Pew Bibles from Esther. So let's let's just kind of walk through it. Ahasuerus was Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S, Xerxes, who was the leader of the Persian Empire, which was the empire that day, from about 486 years before the birth of Christ to about 465 or 464 years before the birth of Christ, depending on how you date his death. Okay? So we're in the 5th century before the birth of Christ, Ahasuerus, and it's, it's really, at this it's about 483 years before the birth of Christ, in fact, we have been able to authenticate that from from archaeological information. We'll come back to that. And so he has an empire that goes from, and you want to picture this, okay? As you're looking, as you're looking at a map, uh, you you would have. Let me see. As you're looking at the map, yeah, you're, you're looking at uh, what we would know of is Iran, okay? And then you have this swath that goes all the way over to northern Africa. All of northern Africa was regarded as Ethiopia at that time. And that included, and this is very significant, it included Egypt. Egypt had been an empire long since vanquished. But you're looking at an arc, basically, between modern-day Iran and modern-day northern Africa. So that's the, that's the, that's the area. We've mentioned the provinces, and in those days... When when Now, everything here is designed to show power and glory. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, Susa was one of the four capital cities of the Persian Empire that included this whole area. And Susa was an area where you could live. It wasn't quite as hot. Susa is in modern-day Iran. okay? And uh, believe it or not, it wasn't as hot there as it was in other areas, but it was the primary capital of the four that were in Persia. In the third year of his reign, and we know that this was 483 years before the birth of Christ, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, which basically meant for the whole empire. The whole empire was brought into his service. And remember that this this empire was kind of a mélange. You you had captured Babylonians, you had captured Assyrians, you had you had captured Egyptians, although Egypt had long since passed off things. So so he has he has for for his purposes. He he has this kind of a half a year holiday uh, in which everyone was to celebrate and and everyone is involved, all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media—it was technically the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes and the Persians were related by marriage, and in fact, interestingly, uh, Xerxes' father was Darius, was a Persian, and his mother was Median, and that marriage brought together the Mede, the Mede, what was called the Medo-Persian Empire. Although here Persia is mentioned first because by this time Persia is very clearly dominant. So the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of... Now what? This is opulence here. The riches of his royal glory and splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. What, what is going on here? Ahasuerus is getting ready for war. Because this part of the empire, if you went north, was what was the growing world power. It wasn't a world power yet, but it was growing, the nation of Greece. And a few years previous, his father had been involved or had led a campaign in Greece in which the Persians were stunned by their defeat. In fact, Herodotus, who's a a Greek historian, has, however he got it, something of a, a stenographic record of what was said to the officials on this occasion. This would have been probably the one-week feast. Uh, but according to the Greek, the Greek historian Herodotus, Xerxes gathers his nobles, and we know for a fact that there was a war council at this time, 483 B.C. Probably at this war council, Xerxes gathers together the leaders of the different groups, and he says, for this cause... I have now summoned you together, that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the Hellespont, which was a way to get them up to Greece, and lead my army through Europe to Hellas, or to Greece, that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father, who had died subsequent to that. You saw that Darius my father was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he is dead, and it was not granted him to punish them. And I, on his and all the Persians' behalf, will never rest until I have taken and burned Athens. As for you, this, and he's speaking out of representatives of this whole empire. As for you, this is how you shall best please me. When I declare the time for your coming, that is the coming to go to battle, every one of you must appear and with a good will and whosoever comes with his army best equipped shall receive for me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. Now notice he says this and as this text continues, listen to the opulence of, of what is available to this most powerful leader in the world, Xerxes I. He showed, in verse 4, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. For 180 days, for for half a year, there's this display of the power of Persia. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. This was to get the capital now united around what was going to happen. And here's the language that is as rich as the language of the tabernacle and the temple. There were white cotton curtains and violet everyone loved purple purple was the color of of royalty there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars wasn't enough to say a rod or a pillar silver rod marble pillar and also couches couches folks of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones, now I want you to get this picture I 't want you to imagine that, that imagine that, that Socrates or Mike or Joe you imagine they're the contractors we 'll put you back in a time machine and it's uh, it, it's in it's in persia and and Xerxes is having this built in the early years of his administration. And there, there are storehouses. Porphyry was a very hard rock that you would get in Egypt. And it had, a, it had a, almost, almost kind of a haunting reddish-purple color to it. It was very, very firm, very fine, very rare, and very hard. And, and you've got this. And then marble, which most of you are familiar with a stone that you can use that that has a lot of crystalline character, in it. and you've got this marble that's here, mother of pearl, mother of pearl is not just pearls it's, the, it's a kind of a translucent thing like you see on the inside of a shell that looks like a, a kind of a glistening rainbow, and it, it was known for its ornamental qualities, not so much for, for the, its rarity because it was rather common, but it just it gave a sheen to everything. And contractors, Socrates and Mike and John and Joe, um, say, <clears throat> what do you want us to put for the flooring? And Xerxes says, see all that stuff over there? Grind it up and put it down so that it shows my own powers having conquest over these nations. And it would have been an absolutely striking kind of a flooring that would have, would have come there. And, and, but that's not all. You have not only feast for the eyes, uh, but also you have drinks that were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine, not just wine, folks, this is the best of the wine. The royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There's no compulsion. Just enjoy yourself. Do what you want. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. This, this folks, is the most powerful man in the world. And he takes half a year to convince all of these people in this empire that he is top dog and he's not going to be defeated when they go to Athens. That's what this is all about, this war council. And all of this glamour is designed to hypnotize people to realize this man is invincible. In fact, the way this is written, it's as, if, it's as if the palace in Susa is an anti-temple or an anti-tabernacle. It is as ornate, it is as flashy, it is as wealthy as was the temple itself which had been destroyed. Now it's replaced by this leader from Persia and his court. Let's stop here for just a minute. We're looking at what really is the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. I want you to imagine, it is this, is, this is what mentioned uh, historical studies. Later, about 100 years later, uh, when, when people discovered How much gold and silver was there? This is astounding. If you you want to go to France and go to Lourdes and the museum, you can see this stuff, okay? But but there were estimated 1,200 tons of gold and silver. Now, imagine this is primarily gold, which it probably was. And this doesn't even count the gold that made the, the vessels and out of which people drank. This was just gold that they could use for what they wanted. 1,200 tons of this. Well, I don't know what gold is selling at right now. What is it, 1500 $2,000 an ounce? And 16 ounces make a pound. There's about $32,000. That's a pound. A ton is 2,000 pounds. And this is 1,200 times 2,000. 1,200 tons of gold. I mean, frankly, Fort Knox would seem bankrupt in comparison to all of this. And that's not all. Uh, they found, upon excavation, 270 tons. Of gold coins. They're not even mentioned in here, but this is in addition to, to the, the other gold and, and to the gold vessels. 270 tons of minted gold coins. I, I mean, this, this you don't want to use the word awesome, this really is awesome to see this. Now, I want you to imagine if this were on television today. I want you to imagine if this was going on right now in this place called Persia. You would see accounts on the television. You'd have all kinds of YouTube and TikTok accounts of it. Uh, There would be internet sites to which you could go to. And my guess is you'd have loads of reality TV specials for this. I I mean, this is just something everybody in the world would want to see. And not only would they want to see these things, but be honest, they would long for these things that are so attractive: cotton curtains, cotton bed sheets, gold and silver for a couch. I don't know how comfortable that was. My guess is they had other things, but the fact that it was gold and silver that you would see, gold, gold mugs and all forms of utensils, people would long for these things. In fact, you're beginning to develop your values from this wealth, power, pleasure, drink as much as you want, parties, power, control. And there's even more that we'll learn about next week. There's a reason why the king wanted Vashti to come, and because there's other things that go. With that kind of promiscuity when it comes to materials, people would long for those things, especially if they were watching it today, when you realize this is the height, this is the height of Persia's power. There's nothing like it, nothing like it. The Bible opens up things like this, whether it be Egypt or Babylon or later Rome, as what we know of as the world system. The Bible and its flow of teaching has a way of illustrating what we would call the world, a system that prospers but does not acknowledge God at all. This is the world system of its day. John, the writer of Revelation, would simply take up what all of these empires represent and call it the beast. Why the beast? The beast devours. You are in awe of the beast. And it devours everything that it can. So, again, imagine that this is reality TV. And what is interesting in this, and at least the next part of the book, this is a book of the Word of God. This is a book that in the Old Testament focuses on Israel. The Israelites would increasingly simply be called the Jews at this point. This book of the Bible, for quite a while, doesn't even mention God's people, let alone the fact that it doesn't even mention God. It doesn't mention God's people. Why? Number one, God's people at this point, the ones that remained In captivity in Persia, and even the ones that were still in Israel that had been sent back. They were marginalized people. They were a minority group. And you'll find out how this minority group is treated as we go on in the book. The Israelites were powerless. You you don't stand before this power. That's, That's the whole idea of this. A hundred, a half a year demonstrating his power. You, you, don't, you don't best this man. The people of God are marginalized, they are powerless, and it's going to get worse because those powerless, marginalized people are going to be cursed by a leader in Persia. So no mention of them. That's exactly our culture. Pandemic comes, four stages of how we are to get back to normal in our culture. No mention of church until eventually certain pastors and others work with their assembly people and say, tug at the governor's sleeve a bit and let him know that we exist and our work is essential. But even at that, only a begrudging allowance of this marginalized group called the church. And powerless. Isn't that the way you feel when you read of the political juggernaut in our nation, the social juggernaut in our nation? It's almost as if you say, hello, there's something called the Christian faith. And it's probably going to get worse. That is exactly the way you feel, is exactly what the situation was for the Lord's people here. Strange new world, right? Which is one of the reasons why we went through that book. Now, that's, that's the situation. The Israelites are not mentioned. They are in exile as the church, in a real sense, is in exile in this world. But God has not forgotten his people. Even though Persia doesn't acknowledge them, God hasn't forgotten his people. God had spoken to his people even as he has spoken to his church. Which brings us now to the rest of the story, Part one, Persian Empire, reaching as you would look at it from, again, I'm saying how you would look at it, it would be actually this way, (laughs) my structural visualization is not the greatest, but you'd be looking as you would be looking at it. This is where Susa would be, and as you're looking at it, you're going over to where it would be Ethiopia, northern Africa, and Egypt. And I'm looking at this in a Bible atlas and saying, what, what is it about this that I've seen before? If you, if you went just about 50 miles, as we would know it, south of this capital called Susa, you would come to the remnants of a very ancient city called Ur where there was a man called Abram whom God called from Ur to go all the way over to what would be the promised land but first of all to what we would call Ethiopia or the northern part called Egypt. Persia's empire literally included the whole area in which Abraham had made his own pilgrimage of faith. And Abram, when he was called, was told this in Genesis 12 and verses 2 and 3, I will will make of you a great nation, this marginalized, powerless people. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Later that promise is reiterated to Abraham's biological seed, Isaac. And Isaac is told in Genesis 27, Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And those words were so powerful that even a self-seeking prophet named Balaam, who had been paid a lot of money to curse Israel, wouldn't do it because God had said, whoever curses you, I will curse. Remember the word, folks, subflooring? If Israel had a catechism like we do that wouldn't be man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, Israel's catechism, whatever else it would have learned about its own existence as coming from Abraham, would be, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing to others. And woe unto anyone who curses you. That was Israel's sub-flooring. Those were the promises out of which Israel originated. So, And it's very interesting that even though Esther doesn't refer to this specifically, at one point when Esther's uncle, Mordecai, speaks to her about what she needs to do, Mordecai makes an interesting statement. He says, if you don't do what's necessary for our preservation now, God, God will do it. He, he, he'll, he'll raise something up to preserve His people. How did He know that? Subflooring, folks, because Mordecai's subflooring was the fact that even though they were marginalized, even though they were powerless, and even though things are going to get very much worse, he knew that God had given promises to His people, and that, my dear brothers and sisters is exactly the same with the church that is grafted in to these promises. God made promises to Israel. The New Testament says those promises which are basically of a redeemer and of redemption and of transformation, those those and it includes blessing you and making you a blessing to others, making you a great nation, what a kingdom that'll never end. Israelites, Gentiles who believe are grafted in to those promises. And they're reiterated in things like this Jesus saying, I will build my church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And hell's gates are not going to prevail against it. Folks, gates are not armaments, gates are not offensive weapons, gates are doors, they're defenses. And the Lord Jesus says, even the defenses of hell will not be able to prevail against what is ultimately the battering ram of the church of the Lord Jesus. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, says that God has a plan, we, we sung of it, to unite all things in Christ. What does that mean? not only to bring believing Jews and Gentiles together as one, but people of all nations are to be brought together in Christ, and in their wake comes a whole new world without sin because of Christ. That's God's ultimate plan, and Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians 1, is given as head over all things, all things, all things, for the sake of this church, which he promises to build, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's given in the scriptures. The apostle Paul, I love this, as a minister, all ministers should love this. Paul goes to the eye of the beast. He goes to the Roman Empire. Paul, Paul who is a preacher of the Galilean who was crucified, Paul goes to Rome and he's bent to go to the beast because he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Sadly, the way many are today. Mm. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is, it is God's power under salvation to all those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He uses the word for dynamite. It is God's power. To work and that's significant that he goes to Rome. And even when Paul's imprisoned, people say, hey, are you sure? Paul says, my, my, my bonds are in Christ. The Lord Jesus has lordship over them. People in prisons are converted. People, people my, my own testimony is such, it strengthens the Lord's people. It even strengthens me. God comes and ministers to me as he did to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My prisons, my bonds are in Christ. Can you think like that, folks? That's your sub-flooring, okay? So, so that's part one in all of this. And, and we do need to ask ourselves, all of us, even when things get worse, as they would for the Jews, do you really believe that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose? Do you really believe it? Or are you so focused on the opulence of this world. Now, be honest. The reality TV, the Internet, the YouTube, the TikTok, all of these things that glorify the world's flooring of porphyry and mother-of-pearl and marble. It even adds and precious jewels. Can you imagine that? There were in that storehouse diamond chips, we can imagine. Diamond chips. And Xerxes would say, "Ah, put them on the floor, let people walk on them. Shows my power. Isn't that so attractive to so many? The rest of the story, part one, deals with with Israel. And remember, our constant challenge, folks, constant challenge, is to look at the flooring rather than the subflooring. And incidentally, that can work in different ways. Let a conservative be elected president. Let a Christian be elected president. Let a party be transformed by the Christian faith. And guess how much you'll be looking at the flooring. Okay. The rest of the story. Part two. I wish I could imitate Paul Harvey in his own... And now, for the rest... Of the story. You always in this program saying, This is Paul Harvey, good day, but we're not done yet. Everything wasn't as it appeared, as you read in Esther chapter 1. Everything wasn't what it appeared in this Persian reality show. This is what was alluded to in that, that portion of the recorded speech of Xerxes. Seven years earlier than this feast and war council was the Battle of Marathon, which was regarded as one of the most significant battles in human history. You have the Persian Empire that was supposed to be invincible under Darius, and they go against this upstart bunch in Athens, in Greece. 6,400 Persians were killed 192 Athenians were killed. It was an utterly humiliating defeat after which Darius died. And that's what, that's what Xerxes is getting at. We're going to burn down Athens. We're going to get our revenge against the Athenians. <laughs> and Esther 1 is designed to say, nothing is going to stop us. The flooring. Three years after the feast... 480 B.C., 150,000 Persian troops from this entire empire are marshaled together. That's what he's getting at in that speech when he talks about bringing your best. This is the best of the Persian troops. And they make their way up the Hellespont to a place called Thermopylae, if you saw the movie The 300, about the Spartans. Eventually, it was the Spartans who tried to defend Thermopylae, and while they valiantly tried to defend it, they still lost at Thermopylae. And Xerxes got his wish. Oh, what headlines? Xerxes said, we'll burn down Athens. Yep, Athens got burned down. Xerxes overlooked something very significant. His troops were land troops, and yes, it was quite a military effort to, with ships, get the people up to Greece, but that wasn't his primary emphasis. He was a builder. He was for forming troops that worked on the land with their their armaments that they could use on the land and build on the land. Navies were secondary to him, not to the Greeks. Xerxes had woefully underestimated the power of the Greeks. The Athenian navy, following the burning of Athens, attacks the Persian ships. 200 of Xerxes' 350 ships are utterly destroyed. And with it, a lot of the wealth that was there to show the power to the people who were in those ships. And so, while they burned Athens, after they lost their navy, they had to retreat from Greece, although there were few that were still left in the land. And a year later, those remaining Persians in the land of Greece were wiped out. And Persia would never be the same again. Xerxes expended, as you can imagine from this text, He says, I'll I'll give you the best. I'll give you the best of my empire when you help me with this. Xerxes' glory was absolutely drained after the invasion of Athens in which all of Esther 1 is designed to show we're not going to lose. Most of his wealth goes into that. And Greece becomes the number one empire in the world, eventually. A few decades later, sadly, Xerxes was assassinated by one of his government officials that he had curried favor with. And a hundred years later, Alexander the Great invades Susa and conquers it and claims that wealth that you heard about before that is now in the Louvre in France he claimed it as his own. Look what happened to the flooring, folks. Okay, and it's very interesting that when you read Revelation, if you just now, I'm not going to give you a page number. You just look at the last book in your Bible, okay? Revelation chapter eighteen. This, this picture of Babylon the Great, which is the beast. Babylon, for various reasons, uh, Babylon became the, the, the sort of the, the, the model of, of what a world system was. And in Revelation chapter 18, you have the fall of Babylon the Great. All the nations... Doesn't this sound like Esther 1, Revelation 18.3? All the nations have drunk the wine of the passion you'll learn of this more next week of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living doesn't that sound like Esther 1 and then Revelation 18 and verses 16 and 17 alas Alas, for the great city, you might as well call it Susa, or any great city that eventually falls. that sound like Esther that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls? Sound familiar? For in a single hour, all this wealth, has been laid waste. We definitely do not want to get our views of the world from Percy Bysshe Shelley, who was a 19th century poet. But I almost think Percy Bysshe Shelley, who knew history, had Darius in mind as he wrote the poem Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, To vast and trunkless legs of stone Stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. So this sounds like Darius, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped. On these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is, you could put in Darius, but it's my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing aside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level sands stretch far away as they do now in what was then susa brothers and sisters let me ask you is that is that your subflooring? especially for young people who are listening. Hey, listen, I get it. The allure of this world, its glitz, its glamour, its power, its sensuality, its pleasures, it's a hooker. You make that the flooring of your faith and you'll end just like Ozymandias. Just like it. That's why the Bible says don't love the world. Neither the things that are in the world For all those in the world, listen, the lust of the flesh, that'll come up next week. The lust of the eyes, that will too. And the pride of life, that's this text. These things are not of the Father. They're of the world. But it goes on. And the world passes away. And the lust of it. But those who do the will of God shall abide forever. Folks, that's, that's, that's this part two in the story. But let me give you a part three as well. This is the story of the whole Bible, God's people and the world. Israel, in Persia, powerless and marginalized. He was despised. And he was rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as Israel will be in this book. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But what he went through in his exile, what he went through being cursed, that was for us. Because... That smiting of the Lord Jesus by His Father, that cursing of the Lord Jesus Christ by His Father is so that curse will be taken away from you. And in what seemed to be the world's ultimate triumph, we have crucified, we have given a criminal's death to this one who even claimed to be God, we been God's instrument to cast him into outer darkness. He disarmed principalities and powers by the cross, and he rose from the dead as the one who was blessed, having taken all curse, as the, as the embodiment of Israel. So that he'll be a blessing to the nation. See what Esther is about. If you even read the book, you see all the themes. So I'm going to go back though to the the main point. I mean, this, this is really what's in view here, but it's the challenge. Do you live off the flooring, folks? Do you live off the flooring of what you get in the news? Then you need to repent. I need to repent because I can do it as well. And go to the subflooring. Subflooring are God's own promises. His name is going to be glorified in all of the earth. Why do you think we pray as we're going to pray in just a little bit? Lord, hallow your name. Cause your kingdom to come. Cause your will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. We think God's putting us through a joke every week. He's going to do that. His kingdom, unlike Persia, is called an everlasting kingdom. That's one of the glories of the Christian faith. You're investing in a kingdom that is everlasting and is destined to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God even as the waters cover the sea. Does it mean things are always going to get better? Humanly speaking, no. It doesn't here. But the big issue, folks, is where's your faith? And it's a moment-by-moment challenge for us in the world not to live... Off the flooring, the glitz and the glamour, but the sub subflooring of God's own promises. Wow! So what? What a the story and the rest of the story in Esther one. Now, we really need to get into the rest of Esther, and <laughs> I just dwell on this. And what we're going to cover next week, the world is going to be transformed by something. And the whole story is going to be transformed by something. In fact, the world will not be the same again because a queen says no. That's next week. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the wonderful reality check of your word. And we we read this over and over again. This is not unique to Esther. Uh, We read it of the destruction of the Assyrians, of the conquest of the Egyptians. Uh, We read it of the the destruction of Babylon, and even the book of Revelation takes that up as a metaphor for for the world system, then Rome's system. And what happened to Persia happens. Ozymandias is repeated throughout history. Lord, please don't let us look at Ozymandias's flooring. May we always go to the subflooring, infinitely more powerful and solid than plywood, but the subflooring of the stones, the promises of your word that are so sure to be fulfilled because they're yes in the great King, Jesus Christ, whose kingdom will never be destroyed. We praise you and bless you and thank you in Jesus' magnificent name. amen. Amen.